Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Kasim Rashid is a human rights lawyer, Naperville resident, and candidate for U.S., Congress, and Illinois 11th Congressional District. He and his family emigrated from Pakistan in 1987 and moved to DuPage in 1988. He lived in Section 8 housing, went to public school and college here in Illinois, and received his law degree from the University of Richmond. His work has focused on standing up for survivors of domestic violence, asylum seekers, and low-income communities. Now he's bringing that experience to his campaign for Congress and standing up against the big companies who pay our politicians to rig the system against working families. We are so excited to have this warrior with us today on CTN with J.D. Fuller. Kasim, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. I'm super excited to have you. Uh, I know your schedule is incredibly busy, so I just want to tell you that I appreciate it up front. I really mean that. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So I want to get right into it because I'm going to try to cover a lot of things in not a lot of time. So first thing I want to ask you is about your childhood. And it's specifically just being raised by a missionary. And I'm curious about the messages that were instilled in you by your parents. You know, beautiful question. The priority for what message was service and humanity. That was at the forefront of everything that we were reminded to do, that every teaching, every teaching, every ethical teaching, every moral teaching came down to what are you doing to serve humanity? Now, if you're not raising that at the core of everything that is taught to us, and we'll make a point whatsoever. And Father, who, you know, talk to people in my life, but he's talking uh, to us right now. Oh, I'm so sorry. I uh, thank you. I, I remember him telling me that be so relentless and focused on serving. You don't have time to judge anyone. You don't have time to look down upon anyone because you're only focused making sure that those around you have believe that every person deserves to bear color in their back. So there were certainly struggles, economic struggles, probably the, the biggest one, but that's amazing hold on one second i just want to turn the air conditioning off apparently it's causing interference okay yeah thank you so much for for sharing that and it's right in line with what i imagine the messages were being raised in your family it's very clear there's there's a theme so i'm not surprised by that at all i want to know specifically what did you learn about yourself and your family in the immigration process, right? Because that has an experience of its own. What, was there anything different that you learned about that specifically? Immigrants uh, are, are people who have their feet in two boats constantly. There's always the back of your mind, I wonder what life would have been like if we had never immigrated. And then there's the question, I wonder what life would have been like if I was born here. Mm. Um, it, I think about that often because in... In Pakistan, I'm not, I'm not really Pakistani because I was raised in the United States. And the United States, I'm not really American because I wasn't born here, right? And so there's a constant struggle that's in the back of your mind. And so it's that duality that uh, society wants you to force you into a box. And I think it wasn't until I, 
I got to my early teens, maybe even my late teens uh, and early 20s, that I began to really embrace the dual identities, that there's no conflict between being proud of my Pakistani heritage and being proud of my American upbringing and my American identity. I think that also was something that my parents infused in me as well in getting us immersed into the community. From a very young age, we were doing adopt a highway cleanups, going to soup kitchens, being involved in, I mean, we're Muslim, but we were, it was a, a point was made to spend time in synagogues and churches and temples and Gurdwaras. And I think that kind of comprehensive approach to the diversity of humanity helped us transcend this idea of nationalistic boundaries that sure, be proud of your American identity, but remember there is a broader humanity that should never be compromised or should never be looked out upon. Your parents were so intentional and thoughtful and strategic that they really formulated the ideal integration of the experience of immigration versus assimilation, which requires you to lose parts of yourself. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think that's part of where I gain my confidence from in knowing that who I am now is not a compromise of who my parents want me to be or who my cultural heritage wants me to be. It's an embodiment. It's this recognition that you can be fully Muslim, you can be fully American, you can be fully Pakistani and a committed citizen of this country, but a committed representative of, of humanity. So that aspect from a very young age of knowing what I believe and why I believe it, I think really solidified that, that it wasn't just I'm a Muslim because my parents happen to be, or that I'm an American because we happen to immigrate here, but it's understanding those identities and, and being able to ask the tough questions and demand answers that make sense. And then in doing so, knowing what I believe because of the experience and the struggle to get there, as opposed to blindly following something that may or may not make sense. You, you already answered this question, but I'm going to ask it again more directly, which is, I think about a lot of people who immigrate to the States. And one of the things I know for sure from my experience of doing what I do in this, in this life, there is an adoption of anti-Blackness that comes with immigration. And I'm wondering how you avoided that or how you bypassed that, because it's sort of ingrained in the journey, you know? Yeah, I, in, at the mosque, honestly, my mm -hmm. earliest teachers were Black Muslims, Black scholars who lived through the civil rights era, who, you know, taught me about the police brutality they suffered in the 40s and 50s in the Jim Crow era, who showed me the scars that they went through, who shared their journals and their scholarship. And, you know, within my Muslim community, our religious head, our fourth caliph was adamantly, he was Pakistani himself, but he adamantly fought anti-Black racism within the mosque as well and called out Pakistanis for the anti-Blackness that many South Asians hold. And so from a very early age, and by the way, some of these names are well-known names. Yusuf Latif, Grammy award-winning jazz musician and uh, a legendary musician, Ahmed Jamal. I mean, these are the kinds of, of leaders that I was fortunate, I was blessed to spend time with. I was with Yusuf Latif, a Yusuf uncle, we all called him. Three weeks before he passed away. So so, so for me, I, I've said this before, and anyone who's heard me speak before will attest to this, that I have been extraordinarily blessed with the greatest teachers a person could ask for. And so the, the irony really for me was that I was so fortunate to have these amazing black scholars, men and women, by the way, I only named men, but you know, Nasima and, and so many more that, that taught me at a young age that I didn't actually 
I feel like they almost sheltered me from the anti-blackness that exists because it wasn't until I got to college that I began to really understand the anti-blackness in the South Asian community uh, because within my mosque and within the people that raised me, it was such a foregone conclusion mm. that black civil rights leaders were at the forefront of human rights in the United States. They were at the forefront of ensuring that Asian Americans could immigrate because after the 1923 decision, Thin versus the United States, Asian immigration was banned and it was it remained banned until black civil rights leaders said none of us are free until all of us are free. And the 1964 Civil Rights Acts and the Immigration and Naturalization Act was passed. And so that's where my upbringing comes from. And then again, in law school, I had an amazing black professor, Jonathan Stubbs. I adore him. And one of the foremost black history scholars in the country. And studying under him and really understanding a deeper interplay between the history of slavery, Jim Crow, and contemporary society reading the words of Dr. Michelle Alexander, Ibram Kendi. Uh, like I said, I've been extraordinarily fortunate to have brilliant scholars guide me and teach me and, and the good fortune to have the sense to shut up and listen. Well, I have to say, not only is there nothing to add to that, but I want to add that, well, I, well, I, I want to say and express my appreciation for the fact that you were exposed to that because we get to benefit from it. And I'm very grateful for that. I mean that sincerely. Thank you. So when did you realize the depth of Islamophobia in America and, and how did you make sense out of that? I was nine years old, maybe eight years old. And I know I was eight years old in 1990. We came home from uh, an invitation of someone's home and we, you know, this is back in the day, anyone under 30 probably doesn't remember this, but back in the day when there were answering machines and <laughs> when everyone used one phone in the house and had a wire attached to it, like a, like a ball and chain and you had to be tied to it. You're smiling because you remember that very well. Of course. Oh, uh, way too well. <laughs> and I think I, I recall my father hitting play on the answering machine and just this monsoon of Islamophobic, you know, Kamaldaki, uh, Talahad, Sand, Edward, you name it. And it was at that moment that I began to really understand uh, how bad this was because I had heard those same terms directed at me on the playground. And I hadn't put two and two together. I had, I, I didn't understand the gravity of them because I'd never heard them before. I didn't, you know, my parents didn't use vulgar language. So I didn't know what the F word was. I didn't know what the middle singer meant. Um, and so kind of seeing that and hearing that, um, I began to understand, oh, okay. So those kids at school weren't just saying random things. They were mocking me. They were making fun of me. They were ridiculing me. And it was, I think that moment that really helped me understand that there is a difference, that, that there is a kind of racial hierarchy that I need to be cognizant of. And yeah, again, fortunate that I had the teachers and the parents that I did to guide me and keep me grounded and not let it impact me beyond the recognition of it. It certainly hurt, but it didn't, because of the compassion and support I had, it didn't leave a lasting scar beyond the fact that it happened. It didn't impact my confidence uh, in any kind of permanent way, which I'm, I'm grateful for. But it also goes back to, you know, that, that debate that's going on that, you know, how young is too young for children to learn about racism? Well, I, when I was six, seven, eight, I was being called uh, the sand N-word. And so if I can be called that, then kids can be taught why that's wrong in the first place. And so that, I think, was kind of the first of many, unfortunately, realities that I experienced. But it's one that stays with me because it reminds me of how critical it is that we continue this work in a consistent and sustainable manner. Appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. You said that there's a post 9-11 unity myth. I love, love 
yeah. that post. So can Thank you do talk a little bit about that here? Yeah, I, I think it's it's the it's the Muslim version of I don't see color, right? It's the it's just uh, this meme that goes around every year that you know nine eleven was a terrible day, but I remember how unified we were on nine twelve and how we helped the neighbor and cared for each other and 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 you know, what this tells me if someone still believes that twenty some years after that horrific day is you really weren't paying attention to what was happening post nine eleven. You didn't see a spike in hate crimes against Muslims or anyone perceived Muslim. The first casualty of a post 9-11 hate crime wasn't even a Muslim. It was a Sikh, uh, Gogan Singh in Arizona, who was known to be a compassionate philanthropist in his community, shocked at by uh, a white supremacist. We saw the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes, particularly targeting women. We saw the rise of the Patriot Act with the expansion of warrantless searches on U.S. citizens. I can tell you that there was a stretch of two years. I, I was a 19-year-old brown-bearded Muslim on 9-11. And I, I can tell you that in the two years afterwards, I was pulled over by law enforcement over 70 times without a ticket for, I mean, racial profiling, obviously, but you know that, that was horrifying. It became a running joke among my friends that I'm not allowed to drive when we go out at night. I, I, I've never had a drop of alcohol in my life, but I've taken more breathalyzers than anyone I know because that was the excuse used to pull me over. So I call that the Muslim version of I don't see color because when someone says there is unity, it means that they don't see the lived experiences of, of anyone brown or bearded or Muslim or turban wearing or cap wearing or hijab wearing. And to deny those lived experiences and the systemic injustices that occurred after that is to deny the suffering of tens of millions of people. And that's truly, that's the opposite of unity. That's, that's perpetuating injustice. And to me, that's not acceptable. You know, I'm going to be very careful how I say this because I don't want to in any way sound like there's any gratitude in what I'm saying. I, I really wanted that to be an opportunity for the global majority to unite. I really wanted people to understand, you know, who look like you and me, that we're in this together. And yeah. you can see at any moment, systems of white supremacy will turn on you. You may be present in the hierarchy, but any given moment, that, flip, that switch will flip and I've, you can be marginalized. And so I, I, I'm on, you know, it's an ongoing hope that that is what comes out of these horrific experiences that we've shared. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, it's going back to the anti-blackness point you brought up earlier. People forget that the largest demographic of Muslims in America are black Muslims. And so the post 9-11 anti-Muslim rhetoric impacted black people yet again. Right. I mean, it's, 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 and I, and I saw other silly memes that, you know, now Muslims finally know what it's like to be black in America. Well, hold on. Like, first of all, how is that mutually exclusive? And second of all, the majority of Muslims in America have always been black. Always. Like there's never been a point in America where the majority of Muslims weren't black. So to, so to the Muslims saying that it's a really offensive and tone deaf comment because you're erasing the centuries and centuries of black Islamic history. And you're also centering yourself in a way that can't possibly compare to the 400 years of systemic enslavement, rape, and genocide of black people. And so, so for me, the framing and the messaging is so important. It's so deliberate that we choose the words we choose in a way that adheres to, to facts, but also fosters meaningful dialogue and meaningful conversation to, to, to change the narrative to one of being reactive to want to be forceful and proactive in solving these problems. Appreciate that. Uh, you know, again, 
your journey was laid out for you in terms of being a person who was going to provide service. But I am curious specifically about how you got into law that was focused on fighting for survivors of domestic violence. I understand asylum seekers, low-income communities, and then volunteering as a chaplain. Can you put all that together? Yeah, it was my wife's idea. (laughs) (laughs) Give credit where credit is due. That's the short answer. (laughs) It was funny. Somebody asked her once, first when I ran for office about four years ago, somebody asked her, would your husband be offended if you pursued higher education? And she got furious and she goes, I'll have you know that when we got married, I, meaning her, my wife, Aisha, she goes, I had two master's degrees and he hadn't even finished his bachelor's degree. And I allowed him to get his bachelor's degree and I allowed him to get his law degree. Oh, I love it. And she's exactly right. And so as I finished my undergrad and I was applying for an MBA program, you know, that you write all those essays and my wife's reading these essays and I'm sitting here as her, as her soulmate, or so I thought for her approval. And, and she's looked at this thing and, and she goes, this is the worst piece of trash I've ever read in my entire life. And, you know, a little bit offended, a little bit hurt. And so I said out of snark, well, you know, you're probably just in a bad mood. She goes, oh, this is really terrible. This is not who you are. It's you're telling people what you think they want to hear. But I know you well enough to know that you're going to be miserable, even if you get admission. This is not where you want to be. And I said, well, what do you think I should do then? And she goes, you're You've been committed to the service aspect. That's where you're happiest. You should consider law school and pursue human rights law. And I said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And she responded, that wasn't a suggestion. That's what you're going to do. And again, I had the good sense to listen. And it was at Richmond Law that I had the fortunate experience of getting involved with the Virginia Poverty Law Center and working in particular with their Office of Domestic and Sexual Violence, working on prison reform with some nonprofits, working on reintegrating returning citizens into society, working with the state prison system to be a mentor and chaplain to those who are incarcerated in level six, level seven maximum security prisons, people who will never see daylight ever again, but recognize the importance of humanity and finding some semblance of peace as they pay their debt to society or however we want to frame it. Mm. And that's work that I've been forced to continue throughout my legal career. And, and, you know, as long as I have my time here on earth, I'll of course continue to support that. During the Afghan withdrawal two years ago, I was able to support about 30 families and get their visas processed to, to get them safe harbor and safe access to a transport and, and to the United States. And again, a rewarding experience, but all of that I think is still for me limited because it's advocacy and it allows you to help a person at a time, but it doesn't really do much to change the systemic injustices that we need to change. First of all, I did not know that most of the Muslims in the U.S. were Black. So thank you for for teaching me that. And secondly, again, just gratitude that you found the path that you found. I mean, so many people have benefited, and I'm hoping it continues through your political career. Thank you. This is a great quote. If you want to talk to me about your values, show me your actions and service to humanity. Has that changed for you in the course of your career? That's kind of, that's been my mantra, right? That's Mm -hmm. been my calling card. And that, and that's ingrained in my, in my faith as well, that service to humanity is the most important part of my faith and worship, however critical somebody defines it to be, is actually worthless if you're not prioritizing service to humanity. And, and there's no asterisks on humanity, right? So for me, the, the greatest form of worship is to serve all humanity. And your personal prayer to God is between you and God. But but the Islamic teaching in this space, and I'm getting a little bit religious on it, but I think it's important to emphasize this point, 
the Islamic teaching at this point is that your worship of God is between you and God and nobody has any right to interfere or intervene or dictate or, uh, or pass judgment. But your service to humanity is between you and all humanity and you have an obligation, a required unbreakable obligation to serve humanity. And, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's plenty of Islamic scholarship that, where God says that he can forgive disregarding prayer to him, but those who you know, deny their obligation to serve humanity will suffer the consequences of that. Whatever that may be, I don't want to find out. But it's, it's that Muhammad Ali quote that I love, right? That service to others is the rent you pay for your time here on earth. And so for me, it, it comes down to just making sure that when my time comes up, I pay my rent. So important to me, basically how I've lived my life. It's the only way it makes sense to me. So yeah. I, that resonates with me so deeply. And I know that you've spoken about this, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to add anything if you want. The power of collateral education, your TEDx Millsap College conversation. And this quote in particular, when your religion has a worse rap than cancer, you have a lot of work to do. Let me just say, this was so painful for me to hear because it resonated so deeply with me. I just wanted to know if you wanted to say anything more about that and encourage everyone to go check out that TEDx. It's incredible. I think foundationally, it's important that people find their comfort zone and learn to step out of it. That's really where life begins to have, in my view, more value and more, more meaning and more sustainability. The concept of collateral education, for those who hadn't seen that TED Talk, is that at the end of the day, if somebody attacks you verbally on social media, you responding to them may not convince them at all. But you responding to them in a compassionate and thoughtful way, people are watching and learning and observing, and it will benefit them. And so really responding to somebody is really less about them and more about what kind of narrative are we pushing in society and how do we create the positive narrative in society? I had an incident a couple of years after that TED talk where somebody sent me a nasty Islamophobic, really hate-filled uh, tweet. And I happened to see it and check their profile and discover that they had about $25,000 in medical debt that was crushing them and they had a GoFundMe. And so I donated 50, 60 bucks to their GoFundMe and tweeted out the link to say, hey, this person hates me because of my faith. My faith called me to serve all humanity. I've donated a couple of bucks. If you can, please do as well. The tweet went viral and within 24 hours, his entire medical debt was paid off. And, and, and a lot of folks said to me, well, this guy was a bigot. He was a terrible human being. Uh, why'd you help him and not somebody else? And I said, well, I have two problems with that statement. One, helping him doesn't prevent me from helping somebody else. So I will do that. But, but two, at the end of the day, my humanity for others can't be dependent upon whether they treat me well or not. I believe healthcare is a fundamental human right. And just because someone is a bigot or a racist or an Islamophobe or a homophobe doesn't change the fact that healthcare is a fundamental human right. And we need to provide that support no matter what. But for me, the most rewarding part of that entire exchange wasn't even the person who then called and apologized. It was the literal thousands of messages I got from people saying, I didn't know what to think of Islam or I thought 9-11 was the right understanding of Islam. Today, I finally understand what Islam actually teaches and what Muslims actually are. And I thank you for that. For me, that is just a priceless victory that no amount of money or argument or debate can come close to addressing. But that humanitarian aspect of what I call collateral education does an excellent job of. And so I, I ask folks to keep that in mind as they respond to negative people out there and see if you can find a way to, to turn it into a positive experience for the public even if the troll themselves or the, the bigot themselves isn't willing to listen or understand. 
that really that really rested uh, heavy with me. And I was like, man, I got to try to reframe how I manage it now. <laughs> so thank you. I want to get to some platform, some other platform issues. I think we've dubbed it, dubbed into it a little bit, but delved into it a little bit. Sorry. But I want to talk about a couple of things that are hot on the, the topic right now, which is gun control and the right wing's media's indoctrination tactics. Will you share some thoughts on that? Well, I, I think on, on gun control, I mean, I, I, I call it, I don't even like call it gun control. I call it gun safety legislation mm. because I, I think, again, yeah, framing matters, right? Mm. The way I, I talk about this issue is there's a couple of ways. One is the statistical data. I mean, there's a reason why red states have a 40% higher murder rate than blue states. 40% higher murder rate, which is absurd. Uh, to think about. And it correlates exactly with states that have, you know, weak gun safety legislation. And and the people who say, well, it's the blue cities in the red states that are causing the violence. Well, okay, let's go with that theory. Blue states have even more blue cities <laughs> than the red states. If that's the case, the blue states should be even more violent. But the fact is, you know, state law trumps city law. So the states that have weak gun laws, the blue cities are going to be, so they're going to succumb to that. That's a factual argument. The logical argument to me, though, I think is the most uh, effective one here in that when we talk about gun safety, either you recognize that every country has people who probably don't know how to handle a firearm or don't have the ability or the intent to handle a firearm correctly, or you believe every person out there should have unlimited firearms regardless of who they are. And if you truly believe that every person out there should have firearms regardless of who they are, it could be a murderer or a rapist, an arsonist. Well, then you're not really worth reasoning with. And I think that the vast majority of Americans reject that ideology. I'm talking to the people who recognize that, yes, there are some people out there who should not have access to a firearm. And I'm very careful because I'm not talking about some exclusive sliver of mentally ill people. That's always been a scapegoat. And the data shows that mentally ill people are 25 times more likely to be harmed by a firearm and to commit harm from a firearm. So I'm not here to demonize mentally ill people and I won't tolerate that argument because the facts don't back it up. But on to those folks who recognize that every country has people around the world that should not have access to a firearm, the question really just comes in is this. Do we want to have legislation that makes it easy for responsible people to get a firearm and difficult for irresponsible people or do we want to have no legislation at all? That's really what it fundamentally comes down to. Because, it, it, you know, Japan has uh, 180 million people and they have nine gun deaths a year. Wow. I have not heard anyone describe Japan as a totalitarian dictatorship or, or some fascist regime. Canada, our neighbors to the north, have one-tenth the gun violence that we do. And all that separates us from them is an imaginary line on the ground. They have one-tenth the gun violence that we do because they have gun safety legislation. That's really what it comes down to. And, if, I, and I don't care how strong of a, you know, I'm, I'm a pro 2A, pro second amendment guy. Great. You have to fundamentally believe that it takes a responsible person to own a firearm. And if you don't, well, then you're just not dealing in reality. And, and I'd rather spend time speaking to somebody on the conservative side who is dealing in reality. And in, in my conversations with those folks, it's been a very productive conversation in framing it that way. Amazing. Let's get some quick thoughts on police brutality and the injustice system in America. What do we do with it? A lot. I mean, I, I think there's a number of things we can do. You know, and I and I speak as somebody who trains law enforcement. Yeah. 
Amendment right to privacy protections. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the initial training has to obviously continue and, and persist. I think the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is an excellent piece of legislation to have meaningful accountability, gets rid of no-knock raids, gets rid of uh, chokeholds, and it, I think it significantly diminishes qualified immunity or gets rid of it. I think that needs to happen. I think we need to get rid of qualified immunity because it's not law, it's not in the Constitution, it's not an amendment, it's not a Bill of Rights. There's no actual federal law, there's no state law. This is judicial activism. Judges basically made up qualified immunity and people are like, all right, let's just go with it, which doesn't actually make any sense because laws are supposed to be passed by elected representatives, not by judges. Judges are supposed to interpret law, but they can't just pass laws on their own. This is not a right-wing or left-wing view. This is just how separation of powers works. So the, 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 the argument to get rid of qualified immunity, I think, is very strong. And I would argue that even conservatives will agree with this argument. And that is very simply this. Part of the problem why qualified immunity was concocted was because we're not investing in public safety. We're investing in just hiring more law enforcement officers. And that might seem contradictory, but hear me out. The facts tell us that 94% of 911 calls are for non-violent issues. And so to send an armed man with a gun for a non-violent issue is illogical at best and dangerous at worst. The reality is, is that our public safety policy has to reflect the societal needs. Right now, law enforcement is not trained as mental health professionals. They're not trained as suicide prevention experts. They're not uh, trained as people uh, who can identify and diagnose substance abuse and address it. They're not trained on domestic violence. They're not trained on bullying in schools. They're trained on violence prevention. You know, left of bang versus right of bang. It's, if you're a military guy, you understand that term. The reality is, is that if we uh, continue to send law enforcement for issues that don't reflect their training, then we are perpetuating a system of violence. Not even because law enforcement is evil or something like that. I, I don't want to get into that right now. But because we're asking them to, to do things that they're just not trained to do. Look, if your plumbing breaks, you don't call an electrician. If you have a heart issue, you don't go to a neurologist, right? If you, you call a plumber you for, for plumbing, you call, you go to a, a cardiologist for your heart. We need to deploy public service folks who are trained on the issues that matter. Denver started a model a couple of years ago where instead of deploying law enforcement to mental health calls, they deployed a mental health unit. And after more than 700 deployments, they had zero deaths. They had zero arrests and they had hundreds of folks that got the medical treatment they needed. And now 20 plus cities have adopted that same model. So qualified immunity is a dangerous band-aid solution to say, yeah, we sent a cop armed with a gun to address a mental health crisis when they couldn't handle it. They killed somebody, but it's okay. Qualified immunity protects them. Mm -hmm. Nonsense. It puts the cop's life in danger, the citizen's life in danger. It does not make us safer. It creates a divide. Instead, get rid of qualified immunity have law enforcement be involved in situations that are, they're actually trained for, and then you won't need qualified immunity. Then you have accountability based on the actual law of the land. Absolutely. And can I add one more piece to that, which is psychological testing for 100%. police officers? The fact Absolutely. that they're evaluated when they first are hired and then not again throughout their career, knowing what their career consists of, the trauma they have been exposed to legitimately and illegitimately is problematic that they are not psychologically tested. It's, it's a huge problem along with qualified immunity. So I just wanted to squeeze that in there. That's exactly right. And, and at the end of the day, I, I think that's where we can talk more about police unions. 
and demanding accountability to police unions uh, as well. Much longer conversation, but again, you know, we, we have psychological testing for a number of roles. It should absolutely be there. I, I've said this before, that law enforcement responds to crime by a living wage, healthcare access, education, clean food, air, and water, uh, prevent crime. So if we want safer communities, invest in people, not punishment. Kasim, this is why I knew not to ask that question because I knew you were going to get to it on your own. All right, I want to squeeze in a couple of more questions. May I please? Please, go for it. We got time. Okay, excellent. Let's talk about climate crisis. Yeah. What, what is the right-wing denial about climate crisis? And we know how poverty is connected to it. So talk about that a little bit. Well, I think it's a right-wing denial and a left-wing apathy. Yeah. Say that again. Wait, wait. We got to slow down and say that again. It's, it's a right-wing denial and a left-wing apathy. And that's, that's the problem that we're facing. Now, look, I, I commend President Biden on making the largest climate justice investment in history. And I encourage him to go further because we are running out of time. This is what the scientists, what the data tells us. I'm running for U.S. Congress right now against an incumbent who is a scientist. And even he has taken nearly $100,000 in Exxon and Exelon and other big energy companies. But even he promotes fracking, which injects a thousand poisonous chemicals into the ground, which has been tied to higher rates of cancer and heart disease, and not to mention earthquakes and, and water contamination. That's apathy. Right? He knows the science, but he's still persisting in engaging in these anti-science policies. And, and you're right, it disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. People remember the outrage over the Dakota Access Pipeline because it was being laid through indigenous uh, sacred lands. What people don't remember is that initially that was supposed to go through an affluent white community. And the affluent white community said, hold up, I'm going to call my congressman and my senator because I have money and I helped them get elected. I'm going to let them know this is not acceptable. And the congressperson, the senator said, yes, this is not acceptable. Let's just put it over there in that indigenous land where no one's going to complain. Well, obviously they did complain, but it speaks to how representation truly and meaningfully matters. It speaks to why it's no accident that if you are black in America, you have a 35% higher likelihood of living next to a toxic waste dump than if you're white in America. If you're black in America, you have a 30% higher chance of dying by cancer from those toxic fumes than if you're white in America. So it is intimately tied to poverty. It's intimately tied to redlining. Redlined areas of cities still don't have trees. And because they don't have trees, they are 10 to 20 degrees hotter. And because they're hotter, there's more carbon monoxide poisoning because of trees, carbon dioxide poisoning because the trees aren't there to process that into oxygen. It's a perpetual cycle. In Chicago, the city that I live near, you could literally walk across the street and your average life expectancy increases by 15 years in significant part due to uh, not just gun violence, but also climate justice. So for, for me, this is not a, you know, a pie in the sky thing. This is reality. This hits home on many levels. My wife and I have an amazing 10-year-old son who is the sweetest, most precious kid you ever met. And all of July, we had to keep him locked inside the house because he's severely asthmatic and the smoke from the Canadian wildfires was poison for him. It was deadly for him. He, I, I, I ta- I've spoken to a constituent in the northern part of Illinois whose daughter has severe asthma and had multiple asthma attacks due to the harmful air pollutants uh, that, that are there right now caused by the wildfires, exacerbated by climate change, enabled by fossil fuel companies who continue to destroy our planet for profit and then for me, the enraging part as a father is to see my current congressman talking about being a scientist, but then taking the fossil fuel money, promoting fracking and pretending like it's no big deal. 
And while I'll say this, while I hope my opponent lives, he's about 70 years old, while I hope he lives a long and healthy life. I, I, I do. And I say that without the slightest bit of animosity. I hope he lives to be as, as long as he possibly can. The fact is that the votes he's making now aren't going to impact him in 60 years. They are going to impact my 10 year old son. And that to me is inexcusable to have that kind of apathy and callous to the children of tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you so much. You said somewhere to imagine a government powered by the people. What could this look like in America where systems of white supremacy are so prevalent? Well, that's where representation meaningfully matters. It's one reason why my campaign for U.S. Congress has exactly zero corporate donations. We will not take corporate money. Simple as that. We are funded by people 100%. And you can look at our 5,500 donors to our uh, donations to our campaign, the average donation of $54. You know, what's really exciting to me is we raised more money in this third quarter than my opponent raised in his first quarter or his second quarter. And we did it with people funding. He did it with corporate funding. And, and so for me, what that looks like is an elected legislature that's reflective of the diversity that is the United States of America. One of my favorite authors, Mary Robinette, has a beautiful quote. She says, it's not diversity for the sake of diversity. It's representation for the sake of reality. Mm. Well, for us to dismantle these systems of white supremacy and the economic injustices that they uphold, we have to create a sense of reality, a reality in our repre representatives in government, a reality in our educators, right? Children, there are more non-white children born today than white children, but 80% of educators are white. That's not just to speak to whether white or black or brown or better educators. It speaks to Ensuring children have leaders and mentors that have their lived experiences allows our children to have better lived experiences as well. So, so for me, we are not going to be able to meaningfully dismantle these systems of white supremacy unless we have all people, black, white, and brown, working together on this cause of justice. This is, for me, the, the, the supreme standard. Justice has to be the supreme standard. I'm proudly running as a Democrat, but that doesn't mean I'm going to hesitate to call on my own party when I believe it does not meet the standards of justice. If we don't, we're no different than the MAGA Republicans who keep going further and further and further right to appease the fascist. We can't let that happen in our party. So for me, those systems of white supremacy are dismantled when we uphold justice, when we have a representation that reflects reality, and when we have a multiracial, multicultural, multigender coalition of people working together for that common cause of justice. You know, this brings me to my last concern and question, which is that the global majority, our global majority, is disengaging in the electoral process. And I want to know, what are your thoughts on how we get us back in the booth to get people like you elected, you know, with our collective power? What are your thoughts on that? You know, the, the beauty of the global majority is there's no shortage of iconic individuals who have led by example. I've one of my favorite writers and authors is James Baldwin. And, and just I, everything he wrote, wrote and spoke was poetry. What, one of his lines from The Fire Next Time talks about all the struggles we're facing and how difficult it is to overcome these struggles. And he says, and I think about this quote, whenever I feel down or depressed or feel like giving up, he says, I know that which I'm asking you is impossible. And I'm going to read the rest of the quote in a moment, but that part, is such a profound opening line because he doesn't say it seems impossible or it feels impossible. He says, I know that which I'm asking you is impossible. 
But then he continues and says, but the impossible is the least that we can demand. For when you look at the spectacle of human history in general and black history in particular, you are emboldened by witnessing nothing less than the perpetual achievement of the impossible. And so the way I view this, you have this brown Muslim immigrant who grew up in Section 8 housing up against an extraordinarily wealthy eight-term incumbent worth $20 million. You say, well, that seems pretty impossible. But my view is that the beauty of Democrats, the beauty of this country is that people, at least on our side of the party, vote on values and principles. They're not beholden to a particular politician. They vote on the values that make them feel whole and validated. We are running on the values of economic justice, racial justice, gender justice, climate justice, social justice, housing access, education access. These are all priorities that I'm not just talking about, that I've exemplified over the last 15 years in my work as a human rights lawyer. So what I'm asking people is to quite simply join us and help us achieve the impossible. I had to take a breath on that one. Man, Kasim, I, I knew I was a fan just learning about you on social media. I knew I was a fan. You're too kind. But dang, you know, I got to tell you, researching you has made me a certified but healthy stalker. <laughs> I, <laughs> I appreciate the love. I, again, I, I've been fortunate to have amazing, amazing mentors and, and, and a pretty, pretty, pretty awesome wife. Well, I, I want to add that you're you're a pretty incredible human being, and and I feel you. I mean that from the depths of my heart. Uh, I'm so grateful for your existence and your purpose. And you know, I really believe that the only hope we have as a global majority is to wrap ourselves around this grassroots effort and yep. to see people like you as a reality rather than a fantasy. So, thank you so much for helping us change the political narrative. I'll keep on donating, and let's get there. And people, please join join the bandwagon. It's it's well worth our effort. I, it has been an honor to be here and speak with you. And, and for those listening, if you want to join, obviously contributing to the campaign is always welcome. But even more valuable than your money is your time. Volunteer for our campaign. Invest your hours. You can do it remotely from the comfort of your own home. Our website is my name, Kassim Go on there, click on sign up to volunteer, and we will get you engaged. Well, I'll definitely do that. Are there any other social media links or information you want to share for people to follow and to find out how to be helpful in your campaign? Yeah, our website, KassimRashid.com, has everything from donating to volunteering to, you know, maybe you have a secret superpower we don't know about that you want to get involved. Let's let's make it work. And then I'm on social media at KassimRashid across all platforms. Follow us, boost us, promote us, get us engaged. Um, and especially if you're in district, let's work together because at the end of the day, we create our future. Let's mobilize, activate, organize, and transform this narrative to one of actual justice for all people. Again, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate his efforts as well as yours. I appreciate your time. And it's really been an honor to spend this time with you. We rushed through, but we got a lot. So it was important stuff to share. And I know you got to run. So thanks again. Thank you, Diddy. You do well. Take care. Okay, take care. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative.